in church. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Danny Kraus. I was asked by Pastor John to, to consider filling the pulpit for him. It must have been about six weeks ago or so, and I don't even remember, but uh, we both decided that today was the day. And uh, I'd been working on something that I thought would be helpful for us, and then the attack on Israel took place, and after praying about it, and I knew that I had to do something different, that I felt the Lord was wanting me to, to go a different direction. So we're going to be looking at a psalm today, and uh, it's not an easy one to look at, but yet yeah, it's, it's God's Word. A short history of who I am, for those of you who don't know me, and you're probably lucky that you don't. Uh, I've been blessed to be a part of this church for a little, a lot over 49 years. I know I don't look that old, but I started coming here before I could drive legally. I did drive here from my house, which was three miles away, and uh, my parents let me do that, crazy of them, but it happened. Met my future wife, was baptized, started farming, got married, Happy birthday, Judy. She just, got a, she just got a present from her kids there. It's very nice. Yes. I got married. This is all the things that I've done in, the, in this church, this particular church. We began raising a family. We worked with children. I worked with children, was an Awana commander, uh, taught Sunday school, left farming, which broke my heart, owned and operated a landscape maintenance company for a long time, 10 years, all that by working in a high school ministry while that happened. In September 2001, I was called to be the youth pastor of Rosedale Bible Church, and I assumed that youth pastor role. A few years later, at age 50, I started seminary. Don't recommend that, by the way straight out of high school to graduate level. It doesn't work. It makes the head hurt. I graduated the Master's Seminary in 2015 and became Rosedale Bible Church's lead pastor in June of that year. I retired from that position in August 31st of 2022. We're still blessed to lead a growth group in our, in our house, and I actually get to help wrangle some little kids on... Uh, Sunday for children's church when Michelle Nichol is doing that. She doesn't like it. She has to handle another child in the, in the room, but I do have fun doing that. And then for the past couple of months, this is on an off point, but uh, it'll be a part of it. I've been able to drive an almond harvester. That's what I've been doing with my time, uh, an almond harvester for RNG Farms, for the Fast and the Ince families. And I've had a great time, and I mentioned the almond harvester only because when you travel through that field at a lightning pace of 2.3 miles per hour, <laughs> you have time to keep up on current events. And watching and listening to the news that started last the week ago Saturday and then this Saturday. And all the way through, and unless you've been living under a rock, you know it's, it's grave. The happenings in, in Israel near the Gaza Strip, the attack by Hamas, which ironically in Hebrew, the word Hamas is translated violence, on innocent civilians indiscriminate atrocities perpetrated on young, the old, women, children, and everybody in between. Brutalities that are too sick and heinous to mention because of the young children that are in this room. The blatant lack of respect for other humans and being utterly, it's been utterly sickening, but sadly not surprising. 
I'm a student of history. My wife hates that. But I can sit and listen to history for hours. What do you think I listen to podcasts while I'm on that tractor? And I know all about the atrocities perpetrated by the Nazis in World War II, the Japanese in World War II that they did, they perpetrated against China. The, the Russian armies as they went back into Germany, the people that they, they just brutalized there. The Khmer Rouge in the late 70s in Cambodia, which were called the killing fields. But don't worry, society's improved since then, right? No. Don't look past our own country. The millions of young babies that are still in the womb that are being torn out. It still happens. There's still great harm perpetrated on humans by other humans, whether it be physical, emotional, or spiritual. We cry out, why? Why? And I must admit, I was overwhelmed. Not scared, but I was overwhelmed by what humanity does against humanity, the injustice for the wrongs that have been done. And I haven't been anyone, I have no one that I'm close to that's been affected by this. I don't have any family that's being held hostage. I don't have any fam or a child that's been butchered. And even worse, the atrocities that have been done. I just feel overwhelmed. And that's what the title, if you, you're in your bulletin, you just, on the page, just scratch out what was there and put overwhelmed, because I'm sure you're going to keep it forever. <laughs> but do many of you feel the same way? Overwhelmed? Well, how should we respond? How should we, I, react to violence, injustice, wrongdoing by those who are evil and barbaric? Now, I'm not talking about how our nation should respond. That's for someone else to preach on. That's a whole different subject. But I, I won't speak on that today other than what Paul wrote in the book of Romans when he said, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your own good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's the government's job. But I do want to speak about the injustices and wrongs done to those closer to home, how we should react to those. It could be persecution or violence against you, your family, or someone else close to you. When our first response, I'll fight fire with fire. That's the natural response, is it not? That's our natural, that's our sin nature talking. You'll pay for what you've done. Then how do we get past the words of our Lord when He said this? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your, enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I'm with you so far, Jesus, right on that. You should hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who, who be sons of Father who is in heaven. And since many of us here this morning call Jesus Lord, we're bound to obey what He says. We have been called to be like Christ, to emulate Him, to copy what He does. And when He is faced with injustice, persecution, and enemies, He responded this way. It is written, 
It is written. Now, I will give him this. He also turned over tables in the temple. But he responded every time. It is written. By that, I mean he quoted and applied the Scriptures to his situation. The writer of the book of Hebrews told us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Of course, he could write that because they could still read and hear what he wrote. But many of them did shed their blood. If you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 69, and we're going to look at what King David wrote about suffering and injustice and heartache. If you need a Bible, and I really, it will really be helpful if you do follow along because it's not going to be on the screen. You can follow along and, and make sure that I'm telling the truth, that I am reading the Scriptures. I said that as a joke, by the way. There's a blue one in front of you, a blue Bible. Psalm 69 can be found on page 482. Now, the psalm that we're going to study today, it's in the category of an imprecatory psalm, which according to scholar Alan P. Ross, now you need to hear this because you're going to go, whoa, what is this guy, what is David talking about? It means, according to Ross, that the writer prays for the ruin of his enemies. Okay, we don't hear many, you know, we don't hear much preaching on that, do we? maybe for good reason. There can be an uneasiness and tension when we hear a godly person ask God to act on their behalf, but God promises that He will make things right. He promises that. Steve Lawson writes, and I quote, this Psalm of David is one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. In fact, it is the second most quoted Psalm. It is often applied by the apostles to Christ and unbelievers. Thus, as David suffered for the sake of righteousness, it was a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus Christ who would be hated and rejected even by his own people. This psalm provides encouragement for all believers who suffer persecution for their faith in a hostile world. James Montgomery Boyce explains it this way. The way to study the psalm is to keep three important and overlapping reference points in mind, and I highly recommend this. David's situation. The second, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And third, our own experiences and problems. He continues, when we think of David, we will remind ourselves of how difficult life must have been for him even though he was the powerful and esteemed king of Israel. When we think of Jesus, we try to enter into his genuine humanity and realize more fully that he endured from sinful human beings for our sakes, what he endured. When we think of ourselves and our experiences, we will be encouraged to endure and carry on faithfully for God, looking to Jesus as our great enabling example. And that's what we have to do. We have to look to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you brought us together on this Lord's Day to encourage each other in uncertain days from man's point of view. But you have everything planned to the smallest detail. Your promises are sure. You are on your throne, and we ask that you do what is right. Strengthen us today, Lord, by your word, through your spirit, as we seek to live right in a world that is often hostile. May we learn from your word this morning 
and apply it. I ask you, Lord, to guide my words. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take that off the screen, Leslie. I can see it and it just bothers me. That guy does look overwhelmed, though, doesn't he? We begin today with David's crisis. If you're keeping notes, there will be quite a few of them here. This keeps your, keeps your mind fresh. Go ahead and take it. David's crisis. Well, he starts out, he's figuratively drowning. He doesn't waste any time at all. Sometimes we don't have time for flowery language, do we? We don't have the verbiage. We don't have to just, oh, Lord, you're great. No, help me. He says in verse 1, save me, O God. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Have you been there? And I'm not talking in a pool, folks. We're talking figuratively here. We're talking life. We might, you might be soaking wet as I'm talking to you, as you're hearing my words. It can happen as a flash flood. Boom, where did that come? Oh, no. Or it can happen at a slow rise. No matter what, we're in trouble. And if it's a slow rise, you have your face and you are looking and you are trying to keep your nose, your lips above water. But can you do it? And it does not seem that you can. Because how long can I tread water? But we look in the next verse, we notice he can't tread water can't. In happier times, David wrote that his feet had been planted on a rock. We see that. In, but here, I sink into deep mire. There's no foothold. His feet are stuck in the mud. He can't move. 19th century prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, wrote of several different types of deep mire that a Christian can sink into. The deep mire of unbelief, the deep mire of trial and difficulty, the deep mire of inward corruption, the deep mire of the devil's temptation and oppression. David continues, he says, I've come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. Cut to the chase. He's drowning. He has no hope. Humanity, from a human standpoint, he's in the depths of despair. He's drained. Verse 3, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. He's cried so long that his throat's irritated. He can't get another word out. I've cried out over and over, and it seems like God is not hearing me. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. He's despised. Verse 4, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Now, for some of you who are follically challenged, that might not seem to apply. But even most of us have so many hairs that we count, can't count them quickly. This is what the enemies felt like against David. He had enemies on all sides. But here is, the possibly, is possibly the gist of the matter. Being hated for no reason. He had done nothing to deserve the scorn that was being heaped upon him. The false accusation, lies upon lies, meant to turn the tide of public opinion against him. It can happen to someone as powerful as David. It can happen to us as well. It can take place in our lives. And believe me, 
Sometimes we can't be, we can be misunderstood. Believe me, we can speak. I can talk with somebody and I can say it's totally something totally I think is innocent and someone can take it a different way. They can, I can be misunderstood. I have that problem. But know this, even Jesus, the perfect Son of God, Son of Man, and Son of David knew this. Jesus says this. He said, they hated me without cause. He said that in John 15, and I'm sure we're going to study that in the near future. We're in good company. Jesus reached back to this particular psalm. They hated me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What what I did not steal must I now restore? I didn't do anything. And now you expect me to make things right? David cries out in frustration the same way we might say, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do? But was he implying that he was perfect or without sin? No, not before God he was not. And we can't claim that either, and we'll see that in our next point. We began with David's crisis, and now we come to David's confession. He has sinned. He has sinned before God. Look at verse 5. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Folly, according to Lawson, conveys the idea of sin against truth, a moral insolence, and guilty is the filthy conscience that results. David isn't admitting that he had done wrong against his accusers. There weren't any truth to the accusations of his enemies, but his trouble had driven him into deep introspection. He had to think, what have I done? What have I done? Have I done this? And we need to do that too. We need to check and see if there's any sin within me, and we need to confess that. What had he done? If he had sinned, God knew it. Nothing is hidden from his sight. That can either be terrifying or it can be comforting. He sees everything. But Christian, that's why it should be easy to confess our sins to God. He knows. He knows them already. David's thoughts quickly turn to other godly people who might be affected by his plight. He cares for the people that are around him. He cared about the welfare of the godly around him, as we, as we should too. Look at verse 6. Let not, emphasis mine, I darkened that up, let not those who keep, who hope in you, meaning those who truly trust in the Lord, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Let me not fall. David then confesses to his God that he has suffered. First, he suffered dishonor. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. Church, make sure that you understand this. This man was in a spiritual battle, as are you. We fight against principalities that we cannot see. He understood that he was scorned for God's sake. Jesus warned, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Elsewhere, Jesus says this. We're more familiar with this particular section of Scripture. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It should be no surprise. No surprise at all. Is it hard? You bet it is. It can be. But reward awaits. David also suffered disassociation. I become a stranger to my brother, an alien to my mother's sons. His family wouldn't talk to him. What about our Jesus? You think about him. His own family thought he was nuts. Can I say that in church? This did. They thought he was crazy. They were going to come and take him away. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David suffered depression. Verse 10, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my approach, reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Lastly, he suffered degradation. David was mocked and made fun of. I like to think of it this way. He was made fun of behind and in front of his back. They didn't, not only talked with him about him when he wasn't there, they talked about him when he was there. I am the talk of those who sit at the gate. That is the seat of power. I was talked about at the city, at the sit of the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. Wow, he's famous. Now, I have to admit, none of us like to be made fun of. None of us. Most, if not all of us, want to be highly esteemed. Now, students, this is for you. This is free. You don't have to worry about it. It's free advice. Everybody else, you can listen for free, too. Don't chase after your contemporaries' approval. Don't do it. Why? Because they're finicky for one, and the only one that you need to have the approval of is your Father in heaven, His Son, Christ, and the Spirit who lives within you. The only one. We've seen David's crisis and his confession, and now we witness David's cry. In the face of unjust persecution, David again turns to the one who holds the world together. He calls out, answer me, God. Answer me. Verse 13, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. God, it's your timing, not mine. Because of your mercy, not my worthiness. Because of your covenant love, not because I'm lovable. He cries out, deliver me, God. Verse 14, deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. He begs, see me, God. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. 
he pleads, draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. Lord, you're all I've got. I got no one else. And church, ultimately that's enough. We've covered David's crisis, his confession, his cry, and now we see the action, actions of David's conspirators. God, you know. God, you see. God, you understand. But David isn't afraid to put his cards out on the table, so to speak. He bears his soul. He lets it out. And he states the obvious. He tells God what his enemies have done and continue to do. But what have they been doing? They shame him. Verse 19, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. They sicken him. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I, I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And my comforters, but I found none. He's alone. You can feel alone when you're in the midst of people. You can be in a big crowd and you can feel like you're the only one there. I understand that. So does God. They scorned Him. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. That should run off bells in your head. Ding, 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 ding. Where have I heard that before? It's your Lord. These were metaphors representing the bitter betrayal that he has suffered. But the last part of verse 21, this is what Christ suffered. Fast forward 1,000 years or so to the Apostle John's account of Jesus' crucifixion. And John writes, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It's written in the Greek language, tetelestai, which is an accounting business term, which means it's paid in full. It's done. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Listen to the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews as he exhorts us. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knows what you have gone through, what you are going through. He knows what those in Israel have gone through and are going through. And he understands. The question is then, have you come to Jesus? Because this was written to those who had belief in him, who trusted him, who bet their life on Jesus, and they put it all there. 
Have you put your trust in Him for your life and for your eternity? I ask you this, why not? Why not? Come to admitting the need of a Savior. Agree that you have sinned. Turn from your sin, your self-worth and effort, and turn to Him and believe. Put faith in Him that He died for your sins on a cross. He paid the just penalty that you, I, deserve. Remember that tetelestai term? He paid it in full. He suffered and died so we and you and I could stand before God and He would accept us because He sees His Son. We could be forgiven. We could be forgiven before God. What relief that gives. And you can become part of His family. He was buried, and after three days He rose again, which means He conquered death, which means you will conquer death too if you are in Him. He lives today and forever and promises to save you if you call on Him. Don't wait. You don't know the day or the hour. You could be just as Karen Fleischauer was, going home from work or going to work, either one, and being in a wreck and be hurt deeply. You could be like Becky Driscoll, taking her daughter to school and get hit by a car. She should be dead, but God saved her. You don't know the day or the hour. Turn to Him. He offers salvation. Now we come to David's charge. David isn't driven by revenge, but he is motivated by righteous indignation. He seeks God's retribution upon the unrighteous. I believe that we can learn from what he wrote in regards to both personal foes and also those who seek to destroy the innocence of the world. These are the tough verses. David asks, he says, more or less, bind my enemies. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. They plan the innocent's demise at a meal. May they fall and ultimately fail. You feast now, but may famine come to you. Maybe may you choke on that food that is in your mouth. Not only bind my enemies, but blind my enemies. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. God, they see me with distorted vision. May they become blind so they are helpless. They can't see to do anything more. Blast my enemies. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom they have struck down and they recount the pain of those who they have wounded or you have wounded. This was spoken about Judas Iscariot, this particular passage. May they be ruined, and may everyone who is close to them be ruined. He also says, bury my enemies. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal before you. He asks the Lord, blot out my enemies. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. <laughs> it's 
hard words. Lawson writes, this does not mean he wished for their eternal damnation, but he desired full punishment for their sins if they did not repent. Hypothetically speaking, David asked that they be blotted out of the book of life, yet he knew that their names were not listed with the righteous. Voices more complete. He sheds life on these raw verses, and I quote, We pull back from words wishing that someone else might go to hell. But if those others who persistently and ultimately are unrepentant, that is the only place they could possibly go and be. If they were taken into heaven, they would ruin heaven. How do we handle something as explicitly vengeful as these verses? First, although David is calling for God's swift vengeance on his enemies, it is significant that he is asking God to render judgment and not proposing or even wanting to take vengeance himself. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Second, it is David, the anointed one of God, who is speaking. Therefore, his enemies are God's enemies. David calls for vindication. Calls for vindication are therefore never merely an individual matter. But there's more. We should remember that Jesus told us to forgive our enemies. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I read that before. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Jesus, when he was being crucified, he continues, even being given vinegar mixed with gall to drink, did not curse his enemies but prayed for them. Instead, he prayed, Father, forgive them, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. We are likewise told to forgive and not to take vengeance. He finishes by saying, Alexander McLaren handles the seemingly incompatibility of Psalm 69 with these texts by saying, it is impossible to bring such utterances into harmony with the teachings of Jesus, and the attempt to vindicate them ignores plain facts and does violence to plain words. Better far to let them stand as a monument of the earlier stage of God's progressive revelation and discern clearly the advance which Christian ethics has made on them. Think with me. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, when we pray... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What's the logical end of that prayer? What will happen to those who have rejected God and he comes back at the last trumpet? they will be judged. The judgment would be righteous. The judgment would be swift. And the judgment will be eternal. It's God's business. We now come to David's celebration. I will praise God. Notice David didn't only pray for the downfall of his enemies. He asked to be restored. And I asked the question, why? Why did you pray that? More or less, this will glorify God. Verse 29, but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. 
I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to praise you no matter what. And when you do these things, I'm going to give you thanks. And this will gratify the Lord. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. There is no sacrifice that I can give other than I thank you, Lord. I praise you, Lord. You are worthy. And that's better than any money that you can give. That's better than any deed that you can do. That's better than any attendance that you can do anywhere. It's praising the Lord with a heart that is truly there. This will gladden others. Verse 32, when the humble see see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise His own people who are prisoners. Then we come to the crescendo. I'll let Joel explain what that is. May all praise God. Who? Well, let people, but peoples today praise Him. Let heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moves in them, for God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. Who else? Let people tomorrow praise Him, and people shall dwell there and possess it, The offspring of His servant shall inherit it, and those who love His name shall dwell in it. The last verse speaks of God's people inheriting the land. I would be foolish to think that most of those living in Israel or are trusting Jesus as their Messiah because most of them are not. But there are many Messianic Jews, completed Jews, as many like to say, who are believers, who trust in the Lord. And whether they are believers or not, They are living people. And they do have the blood of Abraham running through their veins. Personally, I condemn the actions of Amos. I condemn them. They need to be stopped. How that is done, I pray that God's will be done. I also don't fall into the camp that everything that the nation of Israel does is fine and dandy. Because they have sins that they have perpetrated as well. But they are not killing innocent people. What I do ask and pray is that God moves and makes things right. I finish today with the words from my Old Old Testament professor, Michael Grisanti. I believe they are helpful. He wrote this, it came out yesterday. And I read it while I was on the tractor. Imagine that. In Psalm 10, Verse 1, the psalmist asked the Lord the common question, why? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The psalmist goes on to describe a time when wickedness seems to be dominant. After asking God to intervene, he gives us his answer to the, the why question, pointing to who God is. He is totally worthy of our trust and will do what is right and for His glory in His time. 
In Psalm 10, it is written, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. In Psalm 11, verse 1, the psalmist writes these comforting words, In the Lord I take refuge, and, and then asks if the wicked are doing their destructive work. What can the righteous do? He then describes who the Lord is and what He does, ending with this notable set of truths. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His faith in total contrast to those who practice wickedness, our Lord is characterized by righteousness. Finally, after asking Yahweh to deliver him from his distress in Psalm 12, in the very next Psalm, he asked the painful question, the one that we ask, how long? How long? The same psalmist who was struggling with distressing life circumstances tells us his ultimate answer to his own question. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. As our hearts are very heavy, considering this pervasive wickedness. Be encouraged that we have a God in whom we find refuge. We can celebrate that He is the King of the universe who remains on His throne. He is not absent or unaware. He is worthy of our trust. He is and does what is right. He is our ultimate Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.